0: Praise the Lord. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 20.
1: Matthew chapter 20. The title of my message is Redefining
0: What Christian Victory Means. Christian victory, winning. How many like winning? Well, in order to win, you've got to know, you've got to define what a win is. And as a Christian, if you don't know what a win is, you might lose. So I want to redefine by the Bible what a win
1: is. Praise the Lord. It says in Matthew 20. Now listen to the scene here. It says
0: as, this is verse 17. It says, as Jesus went to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. So who is with them? Just the twelve, and Jesus, and He's heading to Jerusalem to do something. So what's He going to Jerusalem for? Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged, and they will crucify Him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So he's heading to Jerusalem to die. Isn't that great news to hear? The twelve are separated. There are just them and him. He has them alone, and he's telling them that, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. We're going together, but they're going to actually kill me, scourge me, and I'm going to die. And they're like, wow. How many think that that hit them pretty hard? Now, this next word is interesting. It says, then which connects it to that, that then this next event happened while he had them privately and was going to Jerusalem. And then it says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So was she a part of that original group? No, because he said it was just the twelve which had two of her sons in there. Her sons were the sons of Zebedee. Their mother's name was Salome. And... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were part of Jesus' inner circle. It was Peter, James, and John, and that was her two sons. Um, James uh, would be the first martyr of the church, the first of the apostles to be martyred. John would be the last one martyred. So they were kind of bookends. One died first, the other one died last, and uh, they were in the inner circle. So they were a pretty distinguished group, and they were a family that was very well respected within the group. In fact, Salome was one of the disciples that ended up at his tomb. She ended up at the cross, you know, mourning Christ on the cross when all the disciples had left. Uh, that group of women probably did a lot to finance Jesus' ministry, and so they're a very prominent group. So then, after Jesus told the twelve that he's going to die and be scourged and be crucified, Then she walks up. Now either her sons told her about the conversation or she didn't know about the conversation because she said, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. So maybe they told her, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But she comes back to Jesus after this private conversation and she bows down and makes a request of Him. And He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. Jesus answers, you answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, that's not mine to give, but it is for those whom uh, it has been prepared by the Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant. They were angry with the two brothers. Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way, though, among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first shall be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, anoint this word. Anoint me, Lord God. Hide me behind Your cross. Speak Your word directly to every heart, Lord. In Your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Thank You. Hallelujah. Everybody said, Amen. So as we see this woman, Jesus didn't get angry with the woman for asking the question. But the disciples were extremely angry that they asked the question. And this woman... Um, she, how many of you know she had to be proud of little Jimmy and little John, right? She's like, These are my boys. They're the best. Uh, they're great. And Jesus, uh, I'm going to get an angle here because they fully expected, get this, they fully expected him to walk into Jerusalem as the Messiah, set up his kingdom, get rid of all the wicked, and, and, and have an eternal kingdom in Jerusalem. And they thought that was going to happen, but the disciples had some information that maybe she didn't have. Oh, yeah, I'm going to die and be crucified, and you're going to scatter. (laughs) But she's asking, when he takes his throne, will you put my boys to the left and to the right in your kingdom? And she was angling for a position. And Jesus was saying, that's not what's about to happen here. Okay, what's about to happen is I'm going to establish my kingdom, but I'm going to do it through dying on the cross and becoming a servant. And those who follow after me need to be a servant. Uh, and the mentality is totally different, what he's asking them to do, than what her game plan was for victory. How many can see that? Her game plan for victory was take the throne, get rid of the wicked, enforce the kingdom, and uh, now's the millennial kingdom, and it's going to be awesome. And my boys are going to be reigning with you. And sometimes you have to understand how to win as a Christian. And she did not understand it. Jesus didn't get angry. Jesus was trying to direct her the right way about how you win as a Christian. And I think we struggle with this same problem. We... Have an idea what victory is, but we gotta make sure it lines up with what Jesus says victory is. And that's what we need to be today, or we're gonna miss out on what God's doing in these last days if we don't know how to win the game. Now there was a war, maybe you've heard of it, it was called Vietnam. Who you've ever heard of Vietnam? And Vietnam was called an unwinnable war. And the reason it was called an unwinnable war because we weren't there to win a war. We were there to um, enforce a line, a boundary, a land. Uh, at the time, North Vietnam, with its capital in Saigon, hold on, capital, yeah, no, hold on. Hanawai. Somebody say Hanawai? It was the capital of the northern Vietnam uh, portion of Vietnam. South Vietnam capital was... Um, Saigon. And so the South was democratic, the North was communist. And so the communists poured all their resources into North Vietnam, and uh, United States and their allies poured their resources into South Vietnam. And so what we were trying to do, there was a theory among most foreign relations um, people around the world that there was what's called a domino effect. And the domino effect is if they take um, Vietnam, Southeast Asia is going to fall like dominoes. The Communist Party is going to literally, like dominoes, all those nations are going to fall in line and become communists. So we begin to send um, our troops, we begin to send our intelligence, we begin to send all of our resources to protecting the line, the land line. And so we weren't there to win. We were there just to protect that line so communism wouldn't spread. And so the reason it's called the Unwinnable War is because we won almost every excursion. We won almost every battle. But when we left eventually, communism moved into a lot of those areas. And so a lot of people said we lost the war even though we won almost every battle that we were involved in. And the casualties were very lopsided on their side, not on ours. And so it's called an unwinnable war. And one of the things that they talk about in a war history is to avoid ever getting into a conflict that you don't win. Because the morale is damaged. And and if you're not winning the war, and even though victory was accomplished by stopping that line in the sand... Nobody knew we won because they had a different scorecard. In fact, if you were to go into football and you thought, man, you know what? The most important statistic is time of possession in football. Whoever holds the ball the longest, in fact, I've seen football games where the opponent has held the ball twice as long and still lost the game. You could say, well, maybe we're going for yardage on the ground. You know, most rushing yards. I've seen teams that have piled up rushing yards, still lost the football game. Basketball, I've seen people that out-rebounded the other team by a large margin and they lost the basketball game. Baseball, I've seen people leave more runners on base and they never got to the plate, they never scored those runs, but they had so many more runners on base and still lost the game. And so what I'm getting at is, what is your definition of being successful as a Christian? And this is the question that Jesus is identifying here. In fact, their, de- their definition, her definition of victory was different than Jesus' definition of victory. And right now, I'm going to bet you that if you're living as a Christian and you look out your window At the world that we live in, you're going to see sin. You're going to see darkness. You're going to see evil. You're going to see all these things, and you're going to look out your window, and if you don't know what the score is, if you don't know how to win the game, you're going to say, we're losing. You're going to look out the window, and you're going to say, well, man... I was supposed to transform the world, get rid of sin, get rid of wickedness, get rid of evil, and you're going to look out the door and you're going to lose heart because you're going to think this is a blowout. How many have ever thought that way? I think that way. I think a lot of times we're performance-based and we think the scorecard is... Is there more evil, is there evil thriving or is there righteousness thriving and are we winning and are we doing the right things to win? Are we up on the scoreboard or are we down on the scoreboard? And sometimes it will affect your Christian walk if you don't know what statistic is being used to win the game. In fact, let me tell you something. When you play basketball, whoever puts the ball in the basket the most will win the game. That's the only thing that matters. Who scores the most points wins the basketball game. In football, whoever scores the most points wins the football game. Baseball, whoever scores the most runs wins the baseball game. You say, well, man, that's simple. But as a Christian, we need to know what scorecard am I looking at to see if we're ahead. (laughs) And so let me go to a place here. Jesus tells a very interesting parable here. And I didn't write down my scripture, but I think it's Matthew thirteen twenty four. I'm guessing, I think that's right. Somebody confirm that when you get there. But it says, Jesus presented another parable to them. In fact, He had told many parables. But I want you to understand this parable to help you keep score and make sure as a Christian you're living a victorious life. But Jesus presented another parable to them saying, this is verse 24 of chapter 13 of Matthew. Jesus put another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sold good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy came and sold tares among his wheat and went away. Matthew 13, right? But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, now, now notice... An enemy came in and planted tares, but the good seed was wheat. He wanted wheat, he wanted to get wheat, but he couldn't tell the difference between the two until they sprouted and it was harvest time. That's the only time you could tell the difference between the two was harvest time. And it says, But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident as well. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather the tares up? But he said, No, for a while you, no, for while you are gathering the tares, you will uproot the wheat as well. Allow them to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. Gather the wheat into my barn. Now, he so, told, so, told several other parables, but when he got done telling all the parables, the one they wanted to hear about, the, um, he wanted them to explain or interpret the one about the wheat and the tares. The other ones they weren't as worried about, but they really were worried about that one. And so he interprets it. He says, in verse 36, he says, Then he left the crowds, went into his house, and his disciples came to him, went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is who? The Son of Man. Jesus sows the good seed, right? And he said... They are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Who is that? So Satan is planting seeds and growing something as well, right? And the enemy that sold them is the devil. Very clear. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burnt with fire... So shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine forth as the Son in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now here's what you need to take out of this. There are wicked people in this world. They're planted, just like we're planted with the Word of God into believing in Jesus Christ and living that out. There are going to be evil people among us. They're going to be all around us. And the evil one is going to literally plant. The field is the world. In fact, the word cosmos is used there. That means the world system and the planet itself, okay? And so what we're seeing is Jesus said there is going to be a field, and it's going to be filled with righteous and wicked. And that means that you're going to see them grow, they're going to be nourished, they're going to get big, and And here's the thing. I wish I could go out and say which one was the wheat and which one was the tare, And the reason Jesus said, don't uproot them, is because a lot of those that look like they're wicked may repent. And they may have turned out not to be a tear. They may have actually been somebody who would have given their heart to the Lord. So if you start taking the tears and removing them, and how many know over the course of history, and even today, there are movements that say, let's Get rid of every single tear. Let's uproot them. Let's remove them. And and there have been movements among the Protestants. There's been movements among the Catholics. How many know to uproot every tear? But here's the problem we just don't know who the wheat and who the tares are until the day of the harvest. And if we were to start removing any tear, that may actually be a wheat. We don't know until the day that God separates uh, the wheat and the chaff. We don't know who is who and what is what. And uh, so Jesus is saying, what this means is, you're going... In fact, let me tell you this. Noah had a real unique time. Noah actually was faithful to God. God cleansed the entire earth of sin. Right? And only his family was there. A righteous man... His family, it looked like another start for mankind. And such a godly man's family. And how many know within one generation, sin began to grow again. Noah had a real chance to populate the earth with righteousness. Within one generation, Ham went a totally different direction. And so how many know that we're going to see this, you're going to look out your window and guess what you're going to see every day? you're going to see a field full of wheat and tares. You're going to see people that are wicked. They're going to be thriving. They're going to be growing in wickedness. And they're going to be rising up. And you say, well, man, I just need to go in there and pull all that wickedness up so I can be a righteous little plant here and and I'll grow And, And Jesus says, no, they're going to grow together. There's going to be some people that are going to say, in fact, they call them the whosoever wills. They're going to have faith and they're going to plant themselves in Jesus Christ and they're going to grow. But guess what's going to be right beside them, entangling their roots with them? Tares. And so, a lot of times, we think our success is we look out the window and we say, Man, righteousness is reigning and this kingdom is established. And man, we're victorious because revival is everywhere and now we've won. And so now I feel like I've done my job as a Christian. Can I tell you something? If the standard is not winning that way, then what is the standard? And the standard is, Jesus Christ said in Luke, I believe it was 1811, He said, When the Son of Man returns, will He find anybody faithful? Will He find faith anywhere on the earth? And so the standard is, Faithful, let me give you some examples of some people in the Bible. Noah, everybody agrees, was a righteous man, right? He was a good man. He was a godly man. I'm the only one that thinks that. Two people. There's two of us. How many think right he was a good man? God looked at him and he seen a humble man, and he's seen a and because of his righteousness by faith, Noah was recognized by God as a righteous man. In fact, the only one on the face of the earth at the time. And he lived for many, many, many years. I mean, over a hundred years preaching
1: the gospel. Very righteous man. Now, what if his scoreboard was what he seen out of his window? Maybe the most corrupt,
0: wicked, darkest period in history was his life. And the impact he had on the world around him. But that's not what he was judged by. He was judged by his faithfulness to the Lord. He wasn't judged by winning the, the, the tares. The tares are going to choose life or they're going to choose death. They're going to listen to his message or they're not going to listen to his message. But Jesus said you will always have a field full of tares and full of wheat. If you had a scoreboard that said Noah's impact on the world around him is how he's going to be judged, Noah would have been way behind. He would have been a blowout because it was a wicked world around him. And you say, well, man, does that... God judged him by his faithfulness
1: in a dark time. You say, well, what about other examples here? Let me give you a few. Moses. What if the scoreboard was... The success Moses had with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Because this is what we do, right? We're performance based. Rather than just
0: being faithful, in fact, there's an old saying that says everybody's trying to win the world or change the world, but very few will ever change themselves. What if Moses' scoreboard was, how successful has he been leading the children of Israel in the wilderness? Very faithful man. How many think he's righteous? Faithful. Faithful all the way to the end.
1: How many did he bring out of the wilderness in that generation? Joshua and Caleb. Right? And himself. Lost them all.
0: But he was faithful to the very end. And that's the scoreboard God's looking at. So if we think that winning is what's going on in this society, you'll quit praying, you'll quit fasting, you'll quit reading your Bible, you'll quit fellowshipping, you'll quit building. Here's what God's calling us to do. There's a whole other group of people. There's the tares and there's the wheat. And God is calling us to find everybody, whosoever will. God is calling us to nourish and grow the wheat. But sometimes we judge ourselves by the tares. We say, well, man, if I'm not, the, the tares are not all completely removed, then we haven't succeeded. And God's saying, no, I'm, I'm calling you to strengthen the wheat. The wheat is what I want strong. The wheat is what I want to grow. But guess what? Evil is going to thrive and grow right next to you in the same field. How many understand that? Let's look at three other guys that did a pretty good job. I'm going to put them in a group of three. They could all stand
1: alone, but Jesus, you guys know him, right? Paul and Peter. What
0: world do you think they looked at when they had their last day on this earth? What do you think the world looked like? Jesus looked out the window, Paul looked out the window, Peter looked out the window, and they weren't very far apart in their last day on this earth, and they seen a Roman empire that was wicked. They had a Roman empire that was brutal, They had a Roman Empire that was murderous. It was sexually worse than our society is now. And they lived their life and they died. And that kingdom was still thriving. How many know that? That kingdom was thriving. They planted seeds and they planted the church. But how many know within 40 years a man like Nero would come to the throne and he was as wicked as any that they had ever had? And so if Jesus, Peter, and Paul's gauge of success is the darkness that's in the world around them, then they failed. But what Jesus is saying is the measure of success is your faithfulness in this world while the terrors are around you. And God's calling all of us to be faithful. So what does it mean to be found faithful when He returns? Um, in fact, Jesus said, I, when the Son of Man returns, will I find faith on the earth? And you say, well, man, I believe in being faithful.
1: I believe in being faithful to the Lord. Do you know if you believe in being faithful to the Lord, that doesn't mean you're faithful? When Jesus returns and you say, I believe
0: in being faithful to the cause of Christ, how many know you're still not faithful?
1: You're unfaithful, you just believe in being faithful. You know, I was faithful in the past 20 years ago, but now I'm not really
0: that faithful, but I've done it in the past. How many know you're still not faithful? You're an unfaithful servant if that's what you believe. And so what I want to do, the gauge of success in the Bible is not the impact that... You know, the darkness looking like it's winning is not the gauge. Because he said that will grow and God's going to correct and God's going to judge and God's going to burn the wicked. He's going to pluck... We I mean, know oh, he's going to pluck every tear, but it's going to be in that day when he judges the earth. He'll rip up all the tares. And, and remember, when he rips up the tares, he also rips up the wheat. So he cannot do it until that day, and he will, the wicked will be uprooted, and the righteous will be uprooted. And he's looking for the righteous to be faithful people when he returns. In fact,
1: it says, and uh, I didn't put my scripture verse down again. It says, then the master said, did you hear what that corrupt? Actually, I'm not going to read that one. But what does it mean to be faithful at Christ's return?
0: What kind of things do you want to be doing when
1: Christ returns? And let me ask you this. Is when you have faith in
0: Christ, when you say to yourself, I believe in Jesus Christ and everything He says in here, that means that I believe that He died for me. And sometimes that's as far as people's faith will go. But knowing that Jesus died for your sins and knowing that you are a sinner should uh, cause a response to be in us to react and to begin to act in faith on that information. And that information says that no matter what I do, I am not righteous enough. No matter what I do, I am a sinner. And when you understand that piece of information, you begin to react in faith. And that's what God's looking for, people that are reacting in faith. So if I know I'm a sinner and I know that I will never be righteous enough uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, I have to receive His death. You say, well, it's over. I just received his death. No. That means that I regularly worship God for what he did for me. In fact, I won't be found faithful. When God comes back, you know what I want to be doing? I want to be raising my hand saying, God, your grace is amazing. I was not deserving. It's so awesome that you love me. It's so easy for me to take a Sunday morning, even a Monday. Even, oh, you say, well, man, this is too much. A Monday, a Tuesday, man, it's nothing for me to start my day. It's nothing for me to end my day. It's nothing for me to spend a couple of hours in a prayer room and just saying, God, how did you do this to me? How did you take somebody so bad as me and love me? How did you take my sins? And some of you go into a prayer room and because you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you think you're good enough to go to heaven. And that's the biggest lie that Satan's ever said. You're good enough without Christ to go to heaven. God, you saved me, and now I've got her on cruise control. I got it from here. That's not how it works, church. Let's know what the Bible says. The Bible says, in fact, my sin gets deeper and deeper the long I know Him, and His grace gets more and more amazing, and I want to worship Him more and more. So when the Lord returns, I want to be the guy that understands that you saved me by your grace and the least that I could do is make you the highest priority of my life. And so now you begin to walk in faith and now you say to yourself, well, if he's the primary focus of my life,
1: then why do I give him secondary rank? In fact, I love, um, I love visiting Dorothy. When she was
0: really young, her uh, dad... Uh, promise that family that I will never miss church, and you know what? Her faithfulness to church, she has a really hard time getting in here, and she just laments when she says, "I don't know if I can ever come back because it's so hard for her to." She's fell down so many times, but she's still living on the faithfulness of her dad. In fact, and this really this this is upsetting to me because I'm not a money man. I'm not a pastor who's in love with money. I'm I'm not a pastor that even cares about money. Yes, we need money to do things and reach the lost. But she will literally harass me because I haven't gotten there to get her tithe check. Primary. I'm talking about primary things in faithfulness. And when the Lord returns, I want Him to be my primary focus. I want to be faithful in giving to the cause of Christ. I want to be faithful with my time. I want to be faithful with my attendance. You say, well, why is attendance important? Because it shows that it's the primary thing in my life. In fact, can I tell you something? I worked over the years, there have been many years, and you're going to think I'm lying here, but you can ask my wife. There were many years I've worked over 100 hours a week
1: regularly. Never miss church. Never miss church. You say, well, man, that sounds kind of religious. No, it's just God is my highest priority.
0: My money, God is my highest priority. I wouldn't miss giving my money to the Lord. And when the Lord returns, guess what I want God seeing me doing? Guess what I want my family seeing me doing? I don't miss church. And when the Lord returns, He's going to see that I'm faithful to Him. I'm faithful when I go to church. I'm faithful when I give my time. Faithful when I give my money. Faithful in all those things. You say, well, Chad, the world around you is dark and you're losing. You're down on the scoreboard. No, I'm, it's a blowout. I'm winning. I'm winning because the Lord's going to return and he's going to find faithfulness in me. He's going to say, Chad, no matter what you went through, no matter how many hours you worked, no matter how tired you were, you still devoted yourself to the Word of God. You devoted yourself to prayer. Your money was not your own. You gave it to the work of the Lord. How many of you know God is looking for faithfulness? The scoreboard is faithfulness. The scoreboard isn't how much you transformed everybody and led a revival. We're so focused on that we think we're losing. But God's saying, no, the focus is faithfulness. Faithfulness every day in a world that's dark. You know how much brighter you shine to God? When the world is extremely dark and the world is going a direction so far away from God and
1: you're still faithful. Man, you're still look at I mean, God is looking down and he's like, Man, look at Job.
0: Everything's going on around him, and man, I mean, and that scoreboard's just lighting up. I mean, you're up a hundred to nothing because Job lost everything. But look at him, man. Look at him. He still loves me. He still spends time with me. He still cares about me. He still won't leave me. He still won't let me go. Moses is on the backside of the desert. You know, he got removed from the palace, sent to the wilderness for 40 years. And God's like, look at him. He still loves me. He's still faithful. He's still, I mean, it was a blowout. Moses was dominating. But what do you think Moses seen when he looked out his window? I was called to lead these people out, and I haven't done a thing for 40 years. It looks dark. Then he looks out his window in the wilderness when he leads them out, and he's like, I'm losing. There's not a single person here that cares about God. But God looked down and said, How is Moses so faithful in a faithless generation? And so the scoreboard you look at is really important. Are you looking at the one that says you have to be successful and win? Like Salome, right and left hand in the kingdom, and you know they're going to be victorious. And Jesus was like, no. I'm going to see if they're going to be faithful to the end, and your son's dominated. James was the first martyr. John was the last of the apostles to die. And boy, if you looked at God's scoreboard, man, those boys were incredible. But if you look at the world scoreboard, well, Jesus died. We've all been martyred. <laughs> you know, that's a tough scoreboard to look at. We didn't change the Roman Empire, and it's because that filled God's not stressing over the kingdoms of this world. He's looking into that field, and He knows that when the harvest comes, when God says it's done, right, He's going to pluck up every kingdom, He's going to pluck up every wicked, and He's going to reward everybody who's been faithful and everybody who's righteous. And church, I'm just encouraging you today. Look at the right scoreboard. Have the right motivation for serving the Lord. All I have to do as a Christian is be faithful to the Lord in the darkest of times that we live in. I mean, know that? And you know what will happen if I'm faithful? In fact, I wrote a few things down. Studying the Word regularly and putting it into practice daily. Like any time you have a chance to study the Word at a higher level or to be in a Bible fellowship or study, and you're living that out the next day... I'm not looking at how I'm changing the world. I'm looking at God and I'm focused on Him and I'm trying to be faithful with His Word in my life. Guess what will happen to the people around you? Every whosoever will that is around you. I keep saying whosoever will. Whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish and shall have eternal life. That's the wheat. And so when you're faithful... How many know that everybody around you that's trying to also be faithful, you're going to strengthen them, they're going to grow, you're going to grow, your light is going to be so bright before the Lord, and you're going to win so many of the lost, but what you can't do is look out your window and say, I'm losing because of all the tears. Because God intended for them to grow. God intended for them to thrive. God intended for them to grow with us in wickedness. And God is going to judge them one day. And God is giving us victory to the whosoever wills. In fact, do you know that every promise God has, He fulfills in that group. We have tremendous victory with the whosoever wills. We have no victory with the tares. Because there's no faith to be found there. You say, well, man, why are we not changing the tares? It's because they're stubborn. They're hard-hearted. They want nothing to do with God. And you say, well, let's pluck them up. No, because they might actually be a wheat.
1: <laughs>
0: we don't know. So we preach the gospel to everybody. We love everybody. We, 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 we try to be faithful and deliver the message to everybody because we don't know, right? But by being faithful... That's what God looks at. That's what God looks down at. He says, hey, you know, and you say, well, man, I'm not changing my, my, my own household. How many of you ever felt that way? Man, my own household, there, there's nobody here that loves the Lord. There's nobody that's seeking the Lord. And, and the Lord's looking at you, and he's not saying, hey, you're way down on the scoreboard here. You're not winning your family. God's not looking at that scoreboard. God's looking at this. how faithful is this person in the middle of that household. And he's saying, wow, look how faithful they are and everybody's always against them. Everybody's always negative toward their life and everybody's always pushing them away from God. But look at them. Look how bright they shine in that household. Look how faithful they are to the house of God. You know, I'm faithful to the house of God. My whole family is with me. But look how much more faithful somebody is that nobody in the household will attend church, but they still go. I may think that's amazing. Nobody else in the household will go, but boy, there they are, faithful. Nobody else will study the Bible with them, but look at them. Look at my child. Look at them. They're so faithful. And church, sometimes we got our eyes on the wrong scoring system. We're trying to win a basketball game by getting more rebounds, which may help, but you don't win the game on rebounds. And God is just looking for people in these last days. another one I put down praying and regularly enjoying God's presence. I mean, all that's faithfulness. Like, you get in that prayer room, you'll get hooked, I'm telling you. You get in there, you forget everything, you get in God's presence, you enjoy it. When the Lord returns, guess what I want to be doing? I want to be studying His Word and living it out. I want to be in that prayer room faithfully and just enjoying God. I mean, I'd love it if I had my hands up in that prayer room enjoying God, and God comes back and he said, yep, I've seen that guy every day. You know, I know that guy, he's ready. You know, he's he's faithful, you know. Giving time, money, and energy to being faithful to the work of Christ. There's never been a time in my Christian life that I haven't been looking for something to do at church. Always looking for something to do. Like almost to the point of harassing. You know, because I want to be involved in the work of Christ. I want my energy, I want my time, I want my money.
1: I want to be invested in what God's doing. And when the Lord returns, guess what I want Him to see? I
0: want Him to see me studying the Word and living it out every day. I want Him to see me in His presence every day. I want to be doing work in this house, in this community. In fact, church, if I could just... I'm hard-headed, okay? I get a vision in my head. I talk about building. How many of you ever noticed? I'm talking about building cafes and talking about redesigning this, trying to get out in that community. There's hundreds of kids in that community. And if I had enough support within months, I would be pulling hundreds of kids out of that community. But I may not get that kind of commitment. So I'm stubborn. I'm hard-headed. I'll have to fulfill it after maybe a year or two years. Or three years, but I'm a bulldog. I won't let go of it. So eventually, I'll fulfill it. The question is, according to everybody's faithfulness, how long will it take me? You know, I mean, I was I was tortured. That took way too long for me in that wing. I'm just I'm sorry. I'm glad we did it. We did an awesome job. But I would have rather. In fact, the difference between 25 people committed with hundred dollars and 50 people committed with hundred dollars makes all the difference in the world. And I'm not a money man. How many times have I ever preached about money? This is the first time I've ever talked about it probably in in a sermon. But the difference of faithfulness to see God's work in this world, I mean, I would rather the Lord come back and see me trying to build something back there to pull the kids in this community in because they don't have anything. They're poor. They don't have anything to do. They don't have anywhere to go. And, And can I tell you something? This is just being honest. Those three young men were helping us work yesterday. They walked into the church this morning over there, and they almost left. And you know what I was
1: thinking to myself? If I were them, I wouldn't want to be here. I'm being honest. If I were 11
0: and a 12-year-old boy, and I had to sit in a big church with a bunch of adults and didn't know any of them, and didn't have anything fun to do, if I were their age, I wouldn't want to be here. And my goal is to make it so exciting for these kids to be here that they become like our family. Like these kids want to be here. Like they can't wait for the doors to open. Like from the moment they get here, we've got our attention and our love on them, and we're taking them to camps and conventions and Barnabas. And how many know that's what we need to be like when the Lord returns? We need to be servants, man. We need to be reaching out to this community and and church, we can do this. We can be faithful. We can be found faithful. If everybody in this church just dug in and said, you know what, I want to be faithful when the Lord returns, we would change the world around us. We, would, we, we literally, that kind of commitment and faithfulness would change things around us. God would win so many of those whosoever wills in fact, a lot of people want to pluck them up and we have our own little club here. You know, let's just let's just keep that whole community out so we can all grow mighty and healthy wheat here. And Lord's saying, no, don't do that. Because a lot of those people that you think are tares, some of those kids that are coming from this community are going to be tomorrow's greatest Christian leaders. How many know that? I've seen it firsthand. I've seen these kids from come from these communities and, and, and they're... They're powerful Christian leaders now. And and church, we can do this. We can be faithful when the Lord returns. Uh, Put on here fellowship, encouraging other believers, serving other people. You know, you'll never be happy until you quit serving yourself. This world's real big on serving myself. Serving myself. It's like, man, Chad, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can come to a work day or I don't know if I can come to prayer. I don't know if I can come to a leadership group because my my, my schedule is just
1: so busy. Oh, really? Maybe you should schedule your ministry
0: and then your life and not your life around your ministry. We do it the other way around. Like I have no time for the Lord because my schedule is so busy. Well, 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 I, I'll be honest. I mean, my whole life I've scheduled around ministry. I've never scheduled ministry around my life. The jobs you take, the career you have. You say, well, my career is important. Well, eternity is kind of important too. You know, if you're too busy to do ministry, you know the next line, right? You're too busy. You're too busy to do ministry, you're too busy, and you're like, Chad, you don't understand. You know, I like my free time. Well, you might like your free time, but there's people that's dying around us, and you're one of them if you're not reaching out to other people. You know, Jesus said, serve other people is how we do it. There's no way around it. If the master uh, of our faith, Jesus Christ, served other people, Guess what I'm going to do? You know, I don't get excited about, I don't get excited about, you know, video games, fellowship, cafes. I don't get excited about that. You say, well, why are you doing, why do you want to do that for then? I get excited about seeing lost kids in this neighborhood flooding our church. I get thrilled. I get so excited. You know why? Because I see little Chad in there.
1: You say, were you ever little? I don't believe that. Little Chad was hopeless, helpless, had nobody
0: to care about him. And every time I see a kid coming to this church, I see a young me that needed somebody, needed somebody to serve and pour into me. And church, we've got to get those eyes. We've got to begin to see that there are people out there that are desperate and they're hopeless. And the only way we're going to do it is do it together. Only we're going to, the way we're going to do it is dream together, put our resources together, put our energy together, you know, fellowship and love each other, and have the same goal of reaching this community, reaching the lost. Because you say, well, man, I can't hardly focus on people in this community I don't know. And I'm telling you, the thing God's calling us to do is not random people, it's your relatives. Some of you have kids. Some of you have grandkids. Some of you have brothers and sisters and moms and dads. And if we don't do this together, we don't get serious about being faithful to God in this house, they're going to be lost. You're going to wish. In fact, I had those kids here yesterday, and I was thinking to myself, man, I regret that I haven't got all these things done faster. Because I'm telling them about what I'm going to do in a year, but I wish it was tomorrow. I wish it was today. I wish we were already pull, pulling these kids in. And, uh, man, I've seen, I've taken so many kids to camp. I had one year, I had 30 boys that went to church camp with me. And those boys were the roughest. In fact, you uh, that, Laura. You remember that group of boys I had? Nobody would have ever believed those boys would ever go to a church, most of them. In fact, some of them were the most likely to be in prison, and some of them are now. But those 30 went to camp with me, one leader and 30 roughest kids in town. And you know what? Those kids loved me like I was their dad. They were perfectly obedient. People in town would say, How do you handle that group of kids? I'd say, Those kids are like my own kids. And how many know that's exciting? I mean, that's exciting because nobody will love a leader more than kids that didn't have a dad. And those kids loved, those kids trusted, those kids were close to me. And church, I want to see it here. I want some of your kids to want to be here. And we can do this. Hallelujah. Amen. We can do this. We've got to be committed. We've got to be faithful. God has got to come to this earth and see people that are faithful to His
1: cause. And so I want everybody to be plugged in. Stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Church, we live in an awesome time. I mean, knowing that wheat and tear scripture, it said we're going to shine bright.
0: And we live in an awesome time because it's dark. You say, oh man, I'd rather live in a
1: revival time.
0: I'd rather live in a time where righteousness is winning. And, and God's saying, no, you're living in a dark world and you're going to shine bright. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want God, and you need to be ready because there's going to be a harvest of wheat. How many know we don't have a harvest of tares? There's a harvest of wheat out there, and it's all over this giant field. So don't get discouraged by the wickedness. Just know that God's voice is crying out to a whole generation of people that want to know the Lord, and we don't know where they're at. Some of them are in gangs right now. Some of them are in motorcycle gangs. Some of them are addicted to drugs. Some of them are alcoholics. Some of them are in uh, satanic cults. Some of them are just normal people who think they're good. Some of them are just kids who are innocent and don't have a dad. Some of them are from broken homes. But there's a whole field full and ready to be harvested, and we're so discouraged with the tears we're not moving forward with it. And God wants us to move forward. Now's the time, church. Now's the time to march. Now's the time to be faithful. Now's the time to dig in. Now's the time to change your schedule. Change your schedule and say, man, you know what? I'm ready to pour in. I want to work for the Lord. I want to do what God's called me to do. I want to be faithful to the... I want to be 100% sold out
1: to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you, Lord. Father, raise us up, Lord God, in this hour. Lord, don't let us backpedal, Lord God. Don't let us
0: be like the one who sees the fire and sees the human loss and backs away, Lord God. Let us be the one that's running into the building, Lord. Running in to save, Lord God. Lord, let us be like those that when you return to this earth, we're being faithful with everything you've called us to do, Lord God. Faithful, trusting You, Lord. Living it out, Lord. Even our failures, we're living them out, Lord God. Trusting You. That's faith, Lord God. Lord, bless this church. Hallelujah. Church, find a place up here. Just give God a little time today. God's blessed you with a whole beautiful day. The least we could do is give Him some time. Love Him, worship Him, thank Him. And, uh and then enjoy our day it's a better day i think when we when we uh thank the lord we're thankful give god time hallelujah They get excited at harvest time. Because all their work was to harvest. And so, man, they get those giant harvesters out in the field. And there is a joy when they're going through those fields, just raking in all that corn and everything. I mean, it's a joy to them. And I don't know if you ever had a garden, but, you know... It's kind of exciting to break the ground at the beginning of the year. It's a little bit exciting because you are playing the garden. But the only reason it's exciting is because you see all those tomato plants and you're thinking about all the tomatoes. You see all those zucchini plants. You're thinking about zucchini. And the real joy is when you have that giant basket and you're walking back proud as a peacock, right? Because you got a basket full of fruit and you can't wait to lay it out on the table so when the visitors come, they see how bountiful your harvest is, right? Church, we got to have that as a church. My problem is, I've been praying to the God of the harvest and he's let me see behind the curtain, he's let me see what the harvest looks like. He's let me see the interactions. He's let me see what is coming, and I want it worse probably than anybody. And church, we got to get a hold of that because it's not just strangers. I, want, I will not rest until this place is the most exciting place in the area for a teenager to be. The most exciting place in the area for a a college-age kid to be. You say, we can't do it, and I'm telling you, I've seen behind the curtain, we can do it. We will do it. I'll be like a bulldog on that vision because God let me see behind the curtain your kids, your grandkids, your parents. Church, we're going to have a ministry uh, to those who are a senior age and they're going to want to be here. You say, impossible. Don't say that. No, it's true. I've seen behind the curtain church we can do it don't allow your stinking unbelief to hold us back you say it's not the unbelief it's you I don't like you're going to have to get rid of it God wants to do great things church I'm sorry if I'm blunt I know I say things a lot of pastors don't say that's okay I wouldn't tell you something I wouldn't do myself. In fact, I talked about 100-hour work weeks and being faithful to church. I can remember those days I worked. There were days I worked 40 straight hours. No rest. Those are my records. And I can remember going to church exhausted. Nothing left in me. Just barely making it there to sit on my seat, trying to stay awake saying, God, I'm going to be faithful to your house no matter what. In church, I wouldn't ask you to do it unless I've done it myself. I'm not sitting in some ivory tower you say, well, you're hard, man. You say things that make me feel bad because I love you. I want to see God do great things in your family. Hallelujah. Let's pray. I'll start preaching again. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's a delight, Lord God, to be faithful to you. We love it, Lord. We love to be faithful to you, Lord. Lord, touch this church. Help this church. Lord, pour your spirit upon this church, Lord God. Take away every negative emotion, Lord God, and replace it with the power of your spirit and unity. Oh, Lord, let your spirit flow in this place. Do mighty things we never could imagine, Lord. Bless them as they go, Lord. In your name, we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hallelujah.